Even better than I was the yeah. last time, baby. Ooh, 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 ooh. We back. I'm And we back, 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 and we back. And I was the last time. Ooh, 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 ooh. We back. Hello and welcome to One on One. My name is Steven Sloan and I was just offered a movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And joining me live from the nation's capital, my very own brother Mick. How you doing, bro, bro? Good. Now, just for clarification's sake, is this a movie that will be on the big screen, or is this a Netflix original? Actually, um, it's going to be released on uh, Amazon Prime, but it's a pilot, so what we're going to do is we're actually only going to do the first 20 minutes of the movie, and then if people decide they like it, we'll go back and we'll film the other uh, two and a half hours. Did you hear that the new Iron Man sequel is going to be exclusively aired as ads before other movies? So it's going to be like 200 tiny trailers. That's a bold move. I like it. Marvel's really pushing the boundaries of what uh, content is in 2016. Do you want to explain what we're talking about or should I? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, we sort of teased it at the end of last week, which <laughs> is kind of silly. But uh, we're talking a little bit about uh, Marvel versus DC. And mind you, um, I think the only comic books I read when I was a kid was uh, Sonic the Hedgehog comics. So neither of us are particularly well versed uh, in either group. So we're going to mostly talk about uh, specifically the movies uh, and the sort of, I don't know, what do you want to say, post-Iron Man, the comic books or things like that. I I hope to be more specific that we're talking entirely about the movies because I was not prepared for a comic book throwdown. I have never read a comic book, so I, I'm not at all qualified. Yeah, so we're, we're wildly unqualified to talk about this, but... Um, we sort of looked at kind of how Marvel and DC have gone about their business and been received over the last, I don't know, six years or so. Um, And we thought it was kind of, it had some interesting things to look at. So even though we're not super knowledgeable about either, we figured it was worth uh, talking about a little bit. Yeah, this is big for us. We've finally gone into the corporate cinematic universe sphere of podcasting. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Uh, so yeah, I guess um, you want to talk a little bit about Marvel first, or do you want me to? Yeah, I, I can do that. So what it kind of made me think about was the idea that, first and foremost, we just didn't have comic book movies until, basically, until Spider-Man in 2000. Like, we had the Superman movies, and we had the Batman movies. And that was literally it. They were both kind of considered not necessarily even like cultural touchstones they definitely fell by the wayside from like in comparison to things like indiana jones or like jaws or like star wars to the point where actually when we did a podcast a little while back and when we were talking about the biggest blockbusters of the 80s and the 90s none of the batman movies or superman movies even came up in the conversation they just haven't transferred to they haven't stayed seared in the cultural consciousness the way that i think you might expect based on how memorable those characters are well to be fair that's also kind of a blind spot on our part um i i think actually burton specifically burton's batman um 
has a lasting imprint. I mean, Nicholson as the Joker is an iconic uh, character. Uh, and I guess, but how many people like under the age of 30 do you hear walking around talking about how great Nicholson's Joker was? That, that's probably true. Our generation probably hasn't really picked it up, but I feel like it was, that's about as close as a comic book movie came to inserting itself into kind of the cultural memory of the United States. But yeah, you're right. Other than that, I mean, that's that's pretty much the only example I can think of that even comes close. I mean, uh, the Schumacher Batmans are famous, but that's because they're terrible. But that's exactly my point, is that on the flip side, I think that when we're writing the cultural history of this time period, specifically starting, specifically starting like in 2007, 2008, when Iron Man came out mm-hmm. onward the marvel cinematic universe as i believe the kids are calling it is going to be by the way i don't think any kids call it that (laughs) i think that's only like 35 year old marketing execs but that's that's the that's going to be the starting point that's going to be the baseline when you're talking i would imagine when you're talking about movies that were out when we were like in high school and college it's going to be like well of course you had the marvel movies yeah and iron man specifically you're right it's kind of a watershed moment uh in a way yeah i don't think any of us expected both in terms of i think the obvious initial storyline actually was the resurrection of robert downey jr's career because you can kind of point to that as the moment he kind of came back as it were yeah so i think everybody sort of expected that would be it and then all of a sudden like they just sort of took off and marvel became like one of the big juggernauts in american culture creation right now yeah and it never even really occurred to me when i saw iron man that i was seeing uh and i think i distinctly remember iron man came out in like may of my freshman year of high school and that like we didn't have a ton of stuff to do so it became like a regular thing where we would go see iron man and i think we saw it like four times <laughs> but the thing is like it's not as though like when we saw iron man it kind of stood alone in a sense that we knew that there would be iron man sequels because the whole concept of everything successful spawning a sequel was pretty much a thing at that point but I don't think it really occurred to anybody outside of the boardrooms of Marvel Studios that it was step one in the sprawling... I mean, the fact that we're calling it a cinematic universe sounds kind of pretentious corporate-speaky, but that doesn't change the fact that that's really the only way to describe this all-encompassing thing that extends to TV and to a series of interconnected films and all of this thing. And what I think is amazing is that Marvel kickstarted this new era. When we talk about how everything's a franchise and everything's a tentpole blockbuster and there's going to be like anthology movies and tangential storylines and there's like someone will be in a scene in like the background of a Marvel movie and then suddenly that's like teasing a different separate barely related movie. And I think it's amazing because that has been the norm for so long that we're kind of we're kind of cynical about to the point where, as incredible as it sounds, Ghostbusters, the recent one that came out, which we both I think we talked about like briefly on the podcast, talked about that we liked it. Part of the reason that that movie was considered a failure was the idea that it would kickstart this Ghostbusters cinematic universe. I'm not even. Did you know that? 
Uh, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, it f- I, I think uh, to a certain extent these days, um, these things have become a referendum on whether we want more of something as opposed to whether a movie itself is good in that sort of way. You know, like you look at a movie now, not just as itself, but you look at it in the context of the rest of the sort of quote unquote, like you said, cinematic universe. And so judgments are kind of being made based on not just the merits of a single movie, but its merits in the context of this larger thing, which I feel like with the exception of like, obviously sequels, you had this where a movie is constantly judged. Okay, well, is it better than the original? Is it worse than the original? Um, But other than that, I mean, when you're talking about uh, looking at a movie in this sort of broader context, it's not really something that it happened until very recently. And so I, I just think it's fascinating that what Marvel has been doing for the past eight years in building this whole expansive cinematic universe where there's tons of overlapping storylines and they have put out literally 13 movies in eight years. And the thing is, that's kind of the new normal. And that's something that has inspired DC to round up all of these characters and all of this intellectual property they have and sort of like put it through that same filter and do literally the exact same thing. Like they're, they're doing (laughs) the same business model. They're introducing their characters one by one. And then they're putting out this justice league movie that is going to happen regardless of people, whether people want it or not. And based on the returns that have been coming in, critically speaking, and actually, to be honest, box office wise, too, because as successful as Batman versus Superman and Man of Steel and uh, Suicide Squad were, they did not hit the mark that DC wanted to make. And so I think it's interesting to look at the fact that Marvel is the first and they're kind of the best and everyone is playing catch up. And I think that the person who has had the most just challenging road in terms of playing catch up to that extent is DC, which has such a clear model in terms of the stories they have to emulate what Marvel's doing. But they're three movies in and they have unquestionably been failing at it. Yeah, well, I think what's interesting is that um, to a certain extent, the Marvel model is fool's gold. The really the only one who can who can follow that model is DC, um, and so it's kind of ironic that they have sort of the best shot of emulating it. Um, but they've proven through I don't know I don't want to say incompetence because that seems mean, but they just haven't be able been able to do it. But in a lot of ways, I mean, what they're doing is basically comic book stuff. You know, you introduce a character through the back door in another superhero story and then that becomes a comic series and then eventually once you have a bunch of threads you bring them all together into an event series and so like ironically as like frustrated as people are they seem to be by this and as like franchise tent poly as uh we've sort of gotten uh, frustrated with um it's kind of the natural progression like comic books if they're gonna move into other media it makes sense that they would do it in the way that they're doing it. Where I think you get into trouble is you mentioned Ghostbusters, and I think that's the perfect kind of thing. Um, That decision to kind of make this Ghostbusters uh, expanded universe, which just sounds ridiculous even saying it, uh, was driven so much by market imperatives that they didn't think about the sort of 
less pretentious than this but sort of the artistic imperative like you said like ghostbusters is a single line story like it's about these people who go out and they bust ghosts what are we going to do like teams from all over the world like each doing different things like you have to look at your material and say like yeah it'd be great if we can make five movies off of this but does our subject matter or our material or our world like lend itself to that and i think something like marvel something like uh, dc uh something like star wars even harry potter like they lend themselves much better to this kind of broadening of the palette because the idea at the core is so um elemental that you can sort of couch it in any kind of story you want and so the result is you have characters that people love stories that vary and it allows you to sort of expand in a way that doesn't feel like you're making the same movie over and over and over again. I think that if you get to the or if you get down to why is this model so proliferated, I think it kind of to put Money. it in to, no, but here's the thing though, to put it in economic terms, it's sort of like diversifying a portfolio. So these movies have gotten so expensive and there's so much riding on uh, if you were just making one standalone $200 million blockbuster, there would be so much riding on the success and failure of that movie. But a good example is that if you have this big cinematic universe, it's sort of a diversified portfolio of movies. And what I mean by that is, for example, Captain America, the first one that came back that came out in 2011, made only like $350 million. Which, considering how expensive it is, and when you factor in, like, splits between the studio's cut and the movie theater's cut, um, that's not, like, I'm sure that's not an impressive profit margin by any stretch of the imagination. But it was building toward the Avengers, which obviously made so much money that it could finance, it could finance three more years of these movies. Uh, And so it's... It's reached a situation where the risk is sort of distributed and that you can afford to have a couple of these movies underperform as long as you get the big hits with some of them. And so I think it's interesting because it's not about the artistry or the content itself as much as it's about spreading out the risk. And it's just it makes sense from a business standpoint if you have the content to carry this on. I actually think it's even simpler than that, honestly. Um, I think we've seen this in um, mass-produced culture, if you want to call it that, for a long time. Um, If you look at TV, you'll see a show do really well, and then you'll see four different shows that are roughly like that show come along two or three years later, right? Yeah. The thing is, like, not to get into, like, crazy Marxist hour here, but, like, Capitalism at its very worst leads... I thought that's what this was called. <laughs> I thought that that was the new name. Like, when you get into a situation where where capitalism isn't begins to stagnate, the sort of uh, prevailing opinion is that capitalism leads to competition and competition leads to innovation, right? Because you want to keep getting better and better and better uh, because that's how you succeed. You succeed by providing a product that's superior. What can sometimes happen, and I think uh, you definitely see in... Um, entertainment is instead of innovation uh, you see sort of trying to hit the same mark right yeah Um, 
so like <clears throat> i think when it comes to these expanded universes i think to a certain extent you're right there's that risk involved you're trying to um spread out that risk and give yourself more chances to succeed but i think it really it comes down to as simple as oh my god look at what marvel is doing they're making so much money this came out of nowhere how do they do this let's go and do exactly what they're doing because this clearly is a thing that's successful and we want to make as much money as we can it, it comes from an entirely business perspective and in a vacuum it should be successful but the problem is that if you're not marketing a quality product regardless of how you present it it's not going to succeed and i think you see that to a certain extent with dc uh, although honestly i think dc's problem is they're sort of in between worlds a little bit uh they're trying to do this marvel thing but they're also trying to be different from them and so what you get are these like big angry massive blockbusters that nobody really wants to see because they're missing that key ingredient of marvel which is the fun you know marvel is basically uh a marvel movie is basically like a sorbet course during a, a dinner you have it you enjoy it you're like oh that was really nice but that's not the thing you're going to be talking about at the end of the meal but the except the thing is i don't even know if that's necessarily fair to marvel and i don't think i think what's so funny is or i think what's funny about this whole marvel versus dc conflict is it's kind of become this dichotomy where marvel is the fun one and dc is the drab one which the, to be fair um i'm not an expert but i know that like dc that has been dc's role and they've done it to better success drab isn't the, obviously they're not drab but like they've always been the grittier more mature darker comics their their heroes are damaged uh their well, yeah. villains are crazy like there's a danger to D the dc universe that isn't quite as present in the same way in the marvel universe i think a good example is that a lot of marvel heroes are orphans but they're orphaned in like a much more abstract way like we mm -hmm. never find out why Peter Parker doesn't have any parents, whereas Batman like watches his parents get murked <laughs> in front of him like and, nine times now. Yeah. Oh, oh, and that's like honestly, it really is kind of a joke that yeah we can't have a Batman movie without seeing Bruce Wayne's parents getting wasted in an alley, and like that that unthinkable trauma is so deep at the core of Batman and it's kind of permeates to the DC universe as well. Mm -hmm. No, but so, so I, I think it's totally fair to at, at a base level say that Marvel is more fun than DC, but I think talking about them as if they're sort of lightweights to DC's like hardcore drama is kind of selling them short. I think that what it's really an example of when you compare those two franchises and to be fair, we're comparing eight years of work from Marvel against like three of DC, but that doesn't change the fact that DC has been far less successful in those three years than Marvel was in the early stages of theirs. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting to me is I think it's an example of something we see in business um, and in companies competing all the time, which is that someone's trying to copy the blueprint, but they're mm -hmm. emphasizing all the wrong things. A good example, what do you think is what do you think is the best thing that Marvel does that DC doesn't? I think it's honestly it's picking their spots. You know, they know when you go to see a summer blockbuster, you want to go and you want to have fun and you want to escape a little bit. And then they know that, you know, when you're sitting at home watching TV, like you're maybe ready for something a little bit darker, a little bit edgier. They're so skilled at like 
Because you're right. I think calling Marvel like the lightweights isn't fair. Because you look at a show like uh, Daredevil or like Jessica Jones, and those are emotionally fraught. They're very um, gritty. They're violent in a lot of cases. But I think they've realized that the audience is looking for something different from each platform. And so I think their best skill is knowing what to give the audience in what place. Yeah, well, I think I would go even I would go to an even simpler place. What I think that Marvel has done incredibly well that DC has been completely unable to grasp mm-hmm. is they're really good at tailoring their movies to the strengths of the people in them. So for example, it's I mean Iron Man Iron Man became this like irreverent person who like even after he had like his life-changing moment when he's like captured and he builds the suit in the cave from a box of scraps (laughs) the reason that marvel is the quippy fun universe is because they have they've been lucky enough to situate it around an actor who's incredibly effective at that type of of having people who behave that way, the sort of irreverent, quippy, funny way, without losing sight of like their humanity. And I think DC hasn't I think if DC tried to make their movies more fun, if like Superman was like joking around, mm-hmm. I don't think that like Henry Cavill and Henry Cavill's American accent would be like the right guy to pull off that type of humor. Like you could also I mean it would be wrong for the character. I mean Superman's thing is that he's earnest. I guess, but the same is true for, I mean, the same is true, for example, for Steve Rogers and Captain America, but they found really funny ways to mine humor from that character. Yeah, well, they've given him the sort of, they've modernized him to a certain extent where uh, he's become sort of one of the guys. And so, like, he'll joke around with Anthony Mackie or, but ultimately, at the very center of his, of his character is this this very steadfast honest good-hearted guy and so he doesn't have the same level of comedy as say uh an iron man or the sort of fish out of water jokes that you see in the thor movie but that's a great example i mean that's a good example of how they tailored thor around they they found like the funniest thing about or the most interesting thing about thor was here's a guy who's coming to a different like universe for the first time and like hilarity ensues Mm -hmm. and so it would have been easy i think to totally discard that that concept um and focus on more dramatic things like him like losing his power and like his conflict with like his like family because he spends like the first 30 minutes of the movie like yelling at his dad for not (laughs) trusting him more Mm -hmm. but they really they found out that that was like a funny and compelling idea And Chris Hemsworth, who, like, I'm a little bit ambivalent about. I can't decide whether he's good or not as an actor. (laughs) Yeah. But he's really funny. Yes, as as seen in his role in Ghostbusters. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. He's he's maybe uh, Channing Tatum 2.0. I feel like Marvel being the fun movies is a result of them realizing that after Iron Man was this smash success boom that's your brand and Mm -hmm. they can build the brand around this guy and robert i mean honestly it helps that robert downey jr was like a generational talent from an acting perspective who only like decades of personal problems led to him landing in that role Mm -hmm. but i think that 
the like that's something marvel has succeeded at is for i mean for all of the like marvel so corporate all of this all of that when you when i watch those movies i don't feel like they're following i don't feel like they're following a formula and it doesn't seem like nobody wants to be there yeah it it seems like well again it goes back to this my sort of theory about why marvel's been so successful they understand that like when you go to see a summer movie like you want to have fun you want to you want the actors to be having fun and so you put you put these actors in a situation where they can enjoy playing off of one another and what appears on the screen is a bunch of people really enjoying like comic books and i think the the complaint that everybody has about the dc movies is that nobody seems to be enjoying themselves at all with the exception of jesse eisenberg (laughs) it seems like in batman versus superman uh which he played to i don't know a middling response because i think he feels so out of place in the self-seriousness of those movies yeah and and i and i think that dc just didn't do a good job i don't think they did a good job sort of laying the groundwork and establishing the character and like empowering people to do empowering people to do what they do well the the thing is like i hold out hope in a way for the batman movie that ben affleck is writing and directing Mm -hmm. because i think that he has a really good understanding of his strengths and his limitations and i i trust him to write for himself in a way that i don't trust Zack snyder to write for him i think that and i think that there could be like there could be a really interesting ben affleck as batman movie but instead he got instead of empowering him and empowering cavill to do what they're good at it was put in a situation where they had to be shoehorned into this movie that was trying really hard to figure out what kind of tone it wanted to have and what kind of mood it wanted to have and a great example by the way uh i think that if you want to make a good if you have henry cavill in your movie and you want to figure out an interesting thing you can do with him as superman (laughs) i think that the best example is favorite of the podcast the man from uncle Mm -hmm. which is an example where he's like in a way his character in that um napoleon solo who's a spy he's kind of like superman in that this like sort of like all-american masculinity like handsome like broad-shouldered dude and who is just kind of kind of amused by everything Mm mm-hmm and I think that that would have been an interesting direction to take a Superman movie where he's just yeah. like, where he's just walking around and he's just like, oh, these, oh, these earth people are funny. Like, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I don't know. I think, I think for me, I would actually take it in a different direction. Um, yeah. Cause I don't think necessarily DC's problem is that they're not funny enough or they don't have enough fun. I think the problem is that you look at something like the batman movies the specifically the christopher nolan batman movies yeah i think their biggest problem is they're rubbing up against what we want and think we need from a superhero movie you know? i guess but the thing is like i don't think it's so much the problem is that like superman isn't funny and batman isn't funny mm-hmm. i think it's that they're not people like they're like their motivations are really hard to connect with and like that was one of the enduring I didn't see Batman versus Superman. So that calls into question whether I should be talking about this at all, I guess. But it seemed like the number one criticism from all the reviews I read, which I'm not even kidding, I read probably 
two or three dozen of them mm-hmm. was that it never made sense that they were fighting when they spoiler alert stop fighting at the end and join forces it would be because of an extremely arbitrary reason and there there's just these movies are made with no care for who these people are where we can't connect with them in the way that we've been able to connect with guys like Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man and like Chris Evans as Captain America. The reason that Captain America worked so well wasn't because they went dark with it. The darkness of the tone was purely a product of we we know these people. Like these people have been in our li- our movie going lives for almost a decade now. And watching them argue and watching them disagree is genuinely conflicting for us. And it's a situation where people, there were a lot of think pieces written about, like, here's why Iron Man was right, or here's why Captain America was right. And it seems like most people were on Captain America's side, which I thought was puzzling. Yeah. But, uh... Puzzling or concerning, depending on how you look at it. But there, there would be no, there was no such conversation like that about the Batman movies, or about Suicide Squad, or about... There's nothing about how much people like those characters because they're not even characters. They're people who are moving from one place to another and like getting into these fights and then making up. And it's all just serving this obelistic like cinematic world. Whereas like you, you at least have enough of a sense of the people in the Marvel movies as rote as they can be in certain situations you at least have a sense of who they are and you have an appreciation for what motivates them and what they want to do. Yeah, well, it's funny because origin stories have become sort of anathema. Uh, I think everybody, you know, you just have to, like, open up your window and hear the audible groan uh, whenever anybody mentions that a movie is going to be an origin story these days. Um, But I actually think you're right. I think... um, I definitely agree that one of DC's biggest problems is they kind of are putting the cart before the horse. I can't believe that's the second consecutive podcast I've made that metaphor. But uh, they're they're putting up these movies with such high stakes and emotional weight behind them, but we don't know anything about these characters. I mean, to a certain extent, we we think uh, if if Man of Steel had done his job right, which I think by and large the attitude is that it didn't, we should feel that way about Superman. But you know, yeah, you're right. You look at Batman. We have no idea who he is, what motivates him. And uh, the thing that origin stories do so well is it gives you a chance to see how a character ticks. You know, obviously it has the practical benefit of introducing a character that you may or may not know. But it actually serves a vital role. Like you look at, um, I think the best example is Ant-Man, which pretty widely is accepted to be one of the lesser Marvel movies. Um, yeah i didn't even see it which i actually i actually really enjoyed it but that's kind of beside the point but the point is that he uh ant-man paul rudd makes an appearance of i don't know five minutes in civil war but because we'd seen ant-man we know who he is where he's coming from and what makes his character that way so he comes in he's kind of goofy and that makes sense in a way that that it wouldn't if he hadn't had a previous movie and so like origin stories as frustrating as they can be for people um especially when you look at something like spider-man who's once again like you want to talk about people who have to watch their loved ones die on an endless repeat like spider-man has seen uh, uncle ben get killed in various horrible ways uh like five times at this point 
Yeah, but, although but, although I thought in the first Spider-Man they kind of copped out. They didn't actually show him getting shot. Well, yeah, because it was a different time. Yeah. <laughs> Other than that, like origin stories are very valuable because they're a great way to... You think of the Marvel Universe as a globe. And the origin story movies, you know, the Ant-Mans, the Iron Mans, the Captain Americas, allowed you to zoom into one corner. And then you say, okay, I understand this corner of the world. Let's zoom back out and see how it fits in the bigger picture. Whereas DC, it feels like it's just like, here is the globe and the globe is on fire and you need to be upset about this. But we're like, all I see is this big, like orb thing i don't really care about anybody involved and yeah so, it's it's like it's yeah. like why it's like why do i care like yeah. why should i care that i mean the whole idea of batman versus superman is batman being all like this guy could destroy the entire planet it's like what difference does it make if the planet gets destroyed in batman versus superman like it's not my world like yeah i have i have no connection to anything in this fictional world and i think it's like i think it's an idea of Something I'd like to get into is the frequent critique of people who are experiencing, like, comic book movie (laughs) fatigue. Yeah. Which, by the way, like, how hilarious is it that we actually have, like, a colloquial term called comic book movie fatigue? Yeah, that it's gotten that, uh, it's it's become that common that we need a shorthand phrase for it. But the the common refrain of that is that these movies are all the same. Mm -hmm. And I think that as someone, as or I think that people who are planning and executing these DC movies and the cinematic universe, I think that they interpret this to mean we can just follow all the same beats because people know that these are the same things anyway. And we don't really need to worry about being or doing anything differently when the reality is they're not actually the same. They hit similar beats, but I think that part of, I think part of what's made Marvel so successful and something that DC has been completely unable to emulate is that while there's certain plot points and while I bet that if you showed a bunch of Marvel movies at the same time, they would have like fight scenes at the same minute marks. And there is obviously a rote format to this, but that doesn't change the fact that Marvel's done a really good job at injecting a unique tone into these. I think Ant-Man's a good example because it's an origin story, which is annoying. It's about a character that no one really cares about, and actually I didn't even know who he was until the movie came out. And the trailer prominently features bugs, which, like, screw that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yet, at the same time, like it was a pretty well-regarded movie, in part because they took this guy, they took Paul Rudd, and they just they just let the man cook. I mean, is that is that like a fair assessment as someone who saw it? It's not even. I I don't even think it's that. It's just a well-done heist movie. Like it's. Uh, I think the thing that Marvel does really well um, is that you can say that you have superhero fatigue, and I understand that. But like at the end of the day, like. The reason why people are frustrated with this, I think, is because superheroes are a thing that we understand. And so you see a superhero in a movie and you are like, okay, this is a superhero movie. Um, And it bumps into the thing that like pretty much all movies are the same once you get past a certain level. Obviously, you have um, experimental movies or movies that break form, but ultimately like a romantic comedy is going to be a romantic comedy. It's going to have the same beats in it. It's just a matter of how you get from those beats from one beat to the next and how you write those beats. And so I think the thing is that like a superhero movie isn't a genre at all. 
and I think Marvel shows this because you look at like the first few movies. Iron Man is a sort of quintessential superhero movie. You know, action-oriented, action comedy, that sort of thing. Then you look at Captain America, and Captain America is a uh, what, what I guess we would call an Amblin-style action movie. You know, it, it lo- harkens back very much to Indiana Jones specifically, but it follows that sort of structure. And then you look at Thor, and Thor is a, a fish-out-of-water picture on the order of something like even like Big or Splash or like the sort of heyday of Tom Hanks romantic comedy movies. And the thing is that I think we've sort of each of those follows the beats of their respective genre and so we've kind of grafted this idea that the superhero movie is the same even though you look at marvel and ant-man is a heist movie and winter soldier was a uh like a mid-80s spy uh action with a little serving of the government can't tell me what to do uh scooped in there yeah just a little a little dollop but yeah but my point is that like while yes superhero movies follow the same beats as their respective genres to say that a superhero movie is a superhero movie i think is inaccurate and so we think that they're all the same and obviously to a certain extent they are but that's because like again ultimately all movies are going to be the same like ant-man followed the beats of a quintessential heist movie because that's what it is and uh so i think it's unfair to a certain extent to say oh i'm sick of superhero movies when really it's just that it demonstrates the flaws of the movie medium in a way that's much more glaring than i think if you were to watch say uh (laughs) bringing back something that i don't know if anybody would know besides us like a sneakers the robert redford movie i and then watching oceans 11 either oh well they're both heist movies but they seem different but then you put the superhero skin on it and it seems more similar to an Iron Man than when in reality it's more like an Ocean's Eleven or a sort of a yeah. quintessential heist movie. And so, and, and yeah, and I think I think that it's an interesting thing. I think that there's a problem, and the problem has a side effect that's kind of reverberating across the movie making community. When people talk about how, like, when people see, for example, if you'll ask certain people, well, what do you think of this Marvel movie? They'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, it was good for a Marvel movie, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's so easy for us to, because they're this whole cinematic universe and they're all lumped together, it's so mm-hmm. easy for us to, like, think of it as this huge, like, snowball of pretty good. When in reality, some of these Marvel movies are really good movies. Like, the the first Iron Man was a really good movie. The third Iron Man movie, with the exception of I didn't think the ending was perfect, but that's mm-hmm. a really enjoyable movie. I thought Civil War was a really great movie. Um, like, I, like, about as good as you can make an action movie, honestly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, are, are we making Casablanca here? Like, I don't, I don't know why there's so much cultural currency that can be earned to the point where you can't like throw a rock without hitting a piece about how franchises are killing movies. I think, I think that we obviously know, like obviously the Marvel movies can't take the place of something like spotlight, but they don't have to. I think that we can have both. And the way that that reverberates that issue of us being a little unfair to these Marvel movies is it's led studios, I think, to believe that we'll watch anything. And it doesn't need to be good as long as it's big. And that's and you see that type of laziness, I think, with the DC movies. Mm-hmm. Like those are those are lazily made movies. I read a review of Suicide Squad that said that like 
by someone who knows a lot more about like the technique the techniques of movie making than i do and they were saying that like the director of that movie was making really basic filmmaking mistakes because they're so focused on shoehorning all of these people in and setting up future movies that they're glossing over the fact that these movies should be good. Every Marvel movie, for what it is, is a good movie. And some of them, I think, go beyond that. Some of them, I think, are genuinely like excellent big-budget movies. Well, yeah, and I think it actually creates another problem on the other side. Because you're right, I think it leads to a laziness where it's like you said you know as long as somebody can recognize the transformers we'll make a billion dollars so the movie doesn't actually have to be good right but i think the other problem is um you see on the other side uh you look at a show like like jessica jones and that that show has a critical ceiling people will review it well but ultimately they will only think of it as this is a superhero movie or a superhero show and so i will not put it anywhere beyond i don't know let's say an eight when in reality, it could be closer to like a nine. Like it's well written. It's the characters are well drawn. Um, it's interesting, uh, and and so like that does it a disservice because uh, it's sort of to go into how we can fix DC. <laughs> Obviously, you and I are so qualified to fix DC's problem. I think I'm more qualified than Zack Snyder. Probably. I'm just um, saying. But I think DC's the fix for DC is kind of institutionally impossible. Because I think what DC needs to do is it needs to do what Christopher Nolan did um, more than what Marvel's doing. And that is to say, these are characters you recognize. I'm going to use it to tell a nuanced and mature story. Yeah, like, for example, like, The Dark Knight is... Mm -hmm. The Dark Knight is an allegory for the War on Terror. Right. It's not even, like, a particularly well-hidden one, either. Mm -hmm. It's just... It's an interesting movie. It's a very interesting concept for a movie that has Batman in it. And there's no attempt to... There's no attempt to inject any type of storytelling like that into mm -hmm. these movies. Yeah, and I think because the return... You have this sort of law of diminishing returns, you know? Um, like... Uh, Batman versus Superman could have been a fascinating rumination on power and who do we give it to and why do we give it to them how would the world really react if this all powerful being came down and said don't worry I'm going to protect you Yeah, because a lot of people wouldn't believe that but the problem is there is no there is no business imperative for DC to make that movie because even if they made the best possible version of that movie people put a ceiling on that and say well, this is a seven because it's a superhero movie. When in reality, they could make a 10 caliber movie that's well-written, well-directed. The It's interesting. The characters are good. But like when you look at a superhero movie and all you see is a superhero movie, that puts it in the box that I think DC is dealing with because they inherently now cannot go to their strengths because their strengths have nothing that would draw an audience to it because we have such a rigid definition of what a superhero movie is. yeah a uh, great i mean for example when you talk about how there's like a great idea for a movie and like a great idea for like movies in batman versus superman like just for fun like i'll throw one out here now like the idea is i think that based on what i saw from the trailers and the think pieces i read the like <laughs> the conceit of it is that what if like superman basically decides to become like hitler 
and just like be this tyrannical like demagogue who like yeah, kills like people a, as whim. There's like a dream sequence where this happens, and it's yeah. apparently a potential future. So yeah. it's not like the conceit of the movie, but there's definitely a part of it dedicated to this kind of alternate reality. Yeah. Whereas, like, I think a more interesting movie would be something more along the lines of the type of the tension between authority and populism that I think the Civil War did a good job of tapping into. I think it would be an interesting idea for a Superman movie where Superman basically decides, as soon as I fix the world, these people do it, these people screw it up. Um, If I was in charge and I controlled everything and, like, ruled with, like, an iron hand this would be the things would be better Mm -hmm. and so i like the idea of superman as this sort of misguided like benevolent dictator who like uses mass surveillance and like extreme punishment for people who do terrible things as a way to keep everyone in line and having that sort of despotism but not with the steaming side of hellscape I guess it's weird that I'm thinking of this first because I didn't even like this book, but sort of like The Giver, where people are under tyranny and they don't even really realize it. Mm-hmm. And then on the flip side, you have like Bruce Wayne, Batman, who's all like, no, this guy's taking our freedom away. Like, we don't we don't want to be like ruled by this dude. So I'm going to fight him and like liberate us. Like, that's an interesting idea where they're both kind of vaingloriously misguided and i think there's a lot more conflict that you can mine out of that yeah well rather than assuming that this this control by superman is leads to a dystopia i think it would be much more interesting if it leads to a utopia of sorts i actually think the giver is the perfect analog to this you know because ultimately what what do you do like what is free will worth if it leads to a lesser existence and i think most people both of us included would say well i want the ability to, to choose and if i choose wrong that has to be okay yeah you know i don't want to live in this perfect world if it means that i have no agency yeah. and i think that's an incredibly interesting human thing you know we don't want the perfection we want the ability to make mistakes and i think like and the problem, once again, going back to it, is DC, they have this character that Marvel doesn't really... They have Vision, I guess. Uh, that would be about as close to Superman as you could get. But, like, one of the one of the quintessential franchise-building characters in DC asks so many fascinating questions about humanity and power and authority, and yet they're sort of... I mean, part of it is they're they're just bad at their jobs, <laughs> and yeah. they don't look for this. But I think part of the problem is they again, they have no market reason to do this because you're not going to make a ton of movie of money off of a Superman movie that is a rumination on fascism because nobody wants to step in out of the heat to watch that. You know, they want to go and they want to have fun. No, but at, at the same time, like I think that. Like, I didn't, like, is Winter Soldier, like, a really fun, funny movie? It, it has elements of comedy that, I well, I think Winter Soldier, the Captain America movies push Marvel in a really interesting way in the, in the movie universe. Because they do, like, you know, Civil War, I'm not going to say it was Citizen Kane, but Civil War is one of the better examinations of the surveillance state that we've seen. You know, this balance between... Um, if you have this force that can save people, at what point do you have to make them accountable 
even if it means maybe that they won't be as effective. Yeah, exactly. And they did a really good job of digging into that. And and I think Captain America sort of leverages the, um, I, I guess, cultural cachet built by the other movies that people go and they know they enjoy these. Yeah. And it sort of backdoors in these really interesting questions. Yeah, and I and I think that I think that what we can like agree on, and I think like this is, I think it's it's sort of the crux of this entire conversation, is that basically Batman versus Superman, and like the whole like what will eventually be, I guess, the Justice League cinematic universe is what they'll call it, because there's no stopping this train now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think that the lesson here is that it's taking all the wrong cues from the Marvel movie and they're using the fact that there's this general perception that all these movies are the same. They're using it just to tick off these boxes and not take any chances or really try and find anything interesting about any of these people. And, and I think that that laziness is an, should be a cautionary tale. Like, I, th- I think that, for example, it looks like Star Wars isn't going to do this because uh, it's an example of how you can hit all the same beats. Insert joke of how Force Awakens is a beat for beat <laughs> remake of New Hope. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if you care about the people you're watching. Like, I, like, I don't, I honestly, I think it would be a safe and kind of disappointing narrative choice. But like, if episode eight is a remake of Empire Strikes Back, basically, (laughs) I mean, it wouldn't be the best thing to do. But as long as it has all of those really fun character beats, like we did, we did an hour long podcast on Star Wars a few months ago. And we didn't talk about the plot at all Mm -hmm. because the plot, if you spend the time and you take the care and you empower your actors and your writers to do interesting things with these characters, it doesn't really matter that you're hitting all the same plot beats. Yeah, I actually think it applies sort of to something that I believe Jack O'Brien said. Which, by the way, by the way, Jack O'Brien is the editor in chief of Crack.com and the host of the Crack podcast and one of the key inspirations for us. Yeah, and so he did this um, thing where, like, your movie-watching brain, how movies trick your movie-watching brain. And I believe it was on the podcast later, he, he talked about how every single movie makes these mistakes. You know, like, Batman goes into a tunnel during the daytime, and he comes out, and it's pitch black. Mm-hmm. And every single movie makes these things. The thing that makes a great movie is that they are able to capture you in such a way that those mistakes don't matter. If you go into a movie... And all you see are like the mistakes and the plot holes and the flaws. Yes, maybe you need to loosen up a little bit, but it might say something about that movie isn't compelling enough to make you want to forget those things. And I think that this can be applied to character. You know, if you go into the Star Wars movie and you say, I'm looking for this to be a beat for beat remake, I'm really aggravated by that, and you don't let any of the character moments in, you're going to come out disappointed. But I think the reception to the movie says, is that ultimately that doesn't matter because the characters are great and it's well written from a character perspective and so the plot you forget about the plot until later when it doesn't matter anymore and and so i think plot like we like to sort of look at plot as a means of determining how sophisticated a movie is but ultimately there are so many factors that go into what a quality movie is yeah you can sort of it's about knowing 
what to slide on and how you make that up so that the things that you give up don't matter as much. And I yeah. think what DC is terrible at is that they just kind of throw out these movies saying, hey, Superman's in this movie, give us all your money. And so they don't, they just leave these very deficient movies that have no compelling reason to look past those deficiencies. And the thing is, like, this is something that I think people can be afraid to acknowledge because, like, if you take it too far, there can be a degree of, like, existential dread associated with it. But, like, people are repetitive creatures. Like, we rewatch the same movies. We reread <laughs> the same books. We listen to the same songs. We, like, we go to the same restaurants. I've gone to the same restaurant for lunch, like, once a week for the past, like, six months at, or during our, at work. And I usually get the same thing, but because of the people, because of, like, the people I go with and, like, the conversations we have with, like, people I work with, the experiences are different. Mm -hmm. It's not about giving a radically different experience so much as it's about getting the things right that are the flourishes, like the character, like the scenery, like the setting. And those types of things are where DC has failed. And that's why, like... I mean, I'm not excited about Avengers Infinity War, but if it looks good, I'll see it. And I'm already out on the DC movies. So mm -hmm. everyone who thought the Wonder Woman trailer looked cool, I would keep your guard up. Yeah, I would look to the Suicide Squad yeah. trailer. <laughs> uh, yeah. And that seemed, I mean, I was that in on that movie. That trailer looked cool too. Yeah, yeah, I was in on that movie. I was it's like, not that I hard to make a that. cool trailer. Yeah, it looks like fun. And then you... The, it, the movie comes out and you realize it's exactly the same as all the others they just front loaded all of the fun bits because like guardians of the galaxy and deadpool did well and no one is interesting yeah and so like i you know you and i both know as as fast and furious stands like we both ride for gal gadot and i'm really excited that she gets to be in a like tentpole movie but I just don't think looking at what DC has done and the attitude that they take toward these movies, I don't think there's any reason to think that Wonder Woman is going to be any better or more compelling than the rest of the movies that have come out. Yeah, so that's where we're at. I guess this is kind of the stay of the union for movies in 2016. Um, Specifically superhero movies, although I know sometimes it feels like that's it's, all it's that's superhero. Out. It's superhero movies and Star Wars. Yeah. and um, But the thing is, like... There, there are still room for movies that aren't those things to sort of have their shine. Well, actually, the irony, of course, is that, you know, again, because like you said, <laughs> everybody loves to write the think piece about how franchises are muscling out sort of what we would call mid-tier movies. You know, uh, 40 to $50 million movies that just aren't really getting made anymore. Yeah. Um, but the irony, of course, is that sort of by the logic of, of again to bring back capitalism because of course we have to the logic of capitalism is that you have these big things so that you can take chances on other things you look at like a google or uh, an amazon is probably the best example like amazon is a drop dead success as a business and yet they operate at i don't believe they i don't think they operate at a loss but they operate at far lower profits than you would think yeah. because they use the guaranteed profits coming from amazon to go into other things that maybe won't make as much money or are more of a risk because they know they have that safety net. Like and the so, Amazon phone. Yeah, and so the irony is that these movies are good for smaller movies because 
if you get the right structure in place, um, you get these people who are willing to say, well, we're going to make $500 million on Superman. So let's go out and take a chance on a young, exciting director to make a $60 million movie. I guess the problem that I have with the franchises are killing um, movies argument is not all that much unlike the problem surrounding the Academy Award hubbub uh, last year is that we should be mad and there are real problems but I think that if we allow ourselves to aim at the wrong target things don't change you look at like the Academy Awards and people got angry that there weren't enough nominees and that's a problem but the problem is not that there aren't enough nominees that is a symptom of the problem which is that there aren't enough roles offered to uh, women or people of color and there isn't enough institutional power for those groups and so when you fix it cosmetically and say okay next time we'll nominate fewer white male actors you don't actually address the real problem and so I think every piece that says franchises are killing movies is giving the the uh, film execs who have sort of allowed themselves to rest on their laurels and utilize the lack of success of those middling movies as compared to franchises as an excuse to not take risks and what we should be doing is not bemoan the fact that franchises are so ubiquitous we need to look and say well really the problem is not the franchises the problem is that we need better more uh, adventurous uh, uh, movie execs who are willing to take more chances and so like it's all well and good to go after franchises, but I think we need to direct our anger in a way that will actually affect real change. And so, like, yeah, now we can move on to sort of what you were talking about. So I think that this is a perfect, I think that this perfectly ties into our closing segment for this episode, which is we're bringing back Hear Me Out, but instead of me trying to convince Steve to watch something, we're going to talk to you about something that we saw together that we both really like. And it really fits the theme of talking about how there's opportunities for sort of smaller budget movies to still shine through, which is this movie Nerve, which came out like the tail end of July. And it's a relatively small budget. I think it was made for 20 million. It made about 40 at the box office, which is great because it was successful. It stars Emma Roberts. And Dave Franco, one of the true inspirations to the one-on-one podcast. The greatest Franco brother. By far. Like, yeah. we could we could have a James Franco versus Dave Franco, but it would basically just be us saying, yeah, well, Dave is better, and yeah. that would be it. Yeah. And so, basically, to describe this movie relatively quickly, it's about a high school girl who sort of fits the stereotypical wallflower with the more popular, like, cheerleader friend who is afraid to like do risky things gets wrapped up in this i guess it's an iphone internet style game called nerve where there are watchers and players and the watchers pay money to players basically betting them money to do dares and the dares as you advance through the game get increasingly more more difficult so like for example it goes from the first dare that she does is kissing a stranger where she kisses Dave Franco in a diner and that's how they get linked up. And it gets to increasingly more dangerous and even death-defying stunts without without spoiling the movie because it's really, 
it's not a movie you want to have spoiled. It's fun to go into it relatively cold. The thing that I thought was most important about this movie beyond the fact that it's really it's a really good example of just a stylishly made, slickly filmed movie. It's really creatively shot, so they use, for example, the sort of it's called a lot of people call it shutter cam where it's filmed from the perspective of someone's iPhone, for example. And there's this very cool neon kind of high-tech smartphone era tint to all of the shots. And it's it's just this clearly these clearly relatively talented filmmakers who are given the creative license to do an interesting thing with it from like a visual perspective. And what I think is important about this movie and a reason why I think it should be an enduring cultural landmark even though there's based on the box office it might not be is i've never seen a movie describe what it's like to be a young adult in sort of the smartphone internet everybody lives through their phones and their computers age better than this movie it doesn't do it in a way that feels at all forced or heavy-handed it feels kind of like it was written by someone who actually lived in that era rather than put together through the sort of group think of a bunch of middle-aged Hollywood executives in a conference room. And it's, it's just a really interesting look into what it's like to live like that and what it's like to kind of be tied to your phone at all times and to, to I mean, the Pokemon Go craze is a great example because people have been lured into dangerous situations playing that game. And this movie does a really good but relatively subtle and not at all forced way of showing you never know for sure who's on the other end and who else is playing and who's watching. Well, yeah, and I think it also, like, it gets a little heavy-handed toward the end. Again, I don't want to spoil anything, um, so I'll try to be as vague as possible. But it, it goes into the kind of um, anonymousness of the internet and how it sort of changed the way we interact. Um, and it does it in a very effective way in large part, even though, like I said, it, can, it gets a little, little too on the nose toward the end. Because I'm not somebody who generally like, buys into the, we're all living in our phones, man. And, and I think what this movie does really well is it balances the benefits of that very well with the costs or the dangers. And I'm thinking specifically of sort of the, the initial, the beginning of the movie. Um, it does a great job of setting up, like, this is good for her. Like, it's good for her to go out and, like, take some risks. But then it shows how... For starters, yeah. she's a wallflower high schooler, and then she gets to make out with Dave Franco. So that's, true. that's it's a already big a huge jump right off the bat. And and you look at how the game sort of starts. Um, it's It's not... It seems harmless. It's your average sort of high school party game uh, put onto the internet. It's truth or dare um, without the truth. Yeah, and then it's sort of like Silicon Valley's dream where you look at something that exists and then you say, how do we turn this into an internet product? And in, and it does it in a way... I think the best part about this movie is that with any dystopian fiction, especially futurist dystopian fu- uh, fiction... It needs to start from a place that feels real and possible, and and so many things in this movie seem possible. Like we talked, uh, we we talked a little bit about the conclusion after we saw the movie, and I started out by saying, "Man, that would never happen," and then I thought back to 
uh, various things, and I was like, oh my god, this actually, like, I can see, obviously, I don't, I still don't think it could happen, but you can see what dominoes have to fall, and what dominoes have already fallen to get you there, um, and I think that's what makes the movie so impressive, is that the logic to get to its end point is surprisingly sound. And it's interesting, because if a crowdsourced truth or dare game appeared on the on the Apple Store, or the App Store... Yeah, it wouldn't be a shock to me at all. It's And frankly, it probably would be super popular. Yeah, and it, it's Honestly. it's a great example of it's a great example of a movie that can touch on those very like intense and thematic or it can touch on really intense themes with real-world implications, but that doesn't dominate the movie. And it's not a particularly dark movie, I would say. It's exciting, but it's also a lot of fun. It's fun to look at. It's fun to it's fun to follow. Both of the leads are really really good. Mm-hmm. It's just it's mm-hmm. it's a good time. I would encourage everyone to see it. And if you don't see it in theaters, I I hope it ends up on Netflix cuz it really does deserve to be a cult classic and it feels very much of the moment we're living in right now. So, round of applause to those guys. Yeah, it has that um I guess I would say that when I think of the phrase or the word as much as I hated edutainment, I think this is what people think of when they think of edutainment in its best form. A movie that you are having so much fun watching it that you don't even realize the questions that you're asking yourself afterward or the things that you learned. And obviously, again, like you have to sort of temper it. It's not, there are some flaws. It's clunkily written sometimes. Some of the jumps don't make sense. But ultimately, I mean, it's well acted across the board. The characters are relatively well drawn uh, throughout. Uh, like you said, Emma Roberts and Dave Franco are phenomenal, and they're phenomenal together, which is... Um, oh, they're so good together. Wh- yeah. Which is increasingly uncommon uh, for the sort of YA adaptations that this comes from. This was a book that was, I think, published in 2012. Yeah. And it's a sort of example of where somebody found an opening that is the sort of YA dystopian fiction you know your Hunger Games uh, somehow uh, Divergent got four movies Uh, and it sort of used that cachet as saying here this comes from that vein this vein sells let me make this movie and used it in a way that was interesting and bold and risky and came out with something that is not perfect but I, I agree with you I think it is one of the very best representations of what it's like growing up in a totally connected world and the potential dangers that if we uh, that we could fall into if we don't think very seriously about who's on the other side about what anonymity on the internet means and what capabilities that give to people um and it just it does a great job of holding up a mirror to our times like you think about a, a show like black mirror and obviously it's not done on the same level as as a show like black mirror but i think it deserves a spot alongside those those very unflinching honest compelling looks at our existence that sort of make us think about how we move yeah and also i in some ways like i think i don't want to play the it's better than black mirror card but no (laughs) but the thing is the thing about black mirror is so many people i've never actually seen it but i know so many people who have and who leave it just being like yeah that really messed me up like nerve nerve will not mess nerve will not leave you messed up you'll have a great time watching it and you'll walk out 
uh, and you'll leave it thinking about some of the interesting questions it proposes. And I think in some ways that's a perfect example of a movie that has those types of themes. Well, yeah, I, I the thing that struck me about our conversation afterwards, because we talked about it literally on the entire like 25 minute ride home. Yeah. Uh, was that we were talking in equal measure about, oh my God, that awesome action set piece or that great shot as we were like, oh, what are the implications of this? Yeah, could that really happen? Like such and yeah, yeah. And, and I think that speaks very highly of the movie that they made. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I agree with you. I think everybody should go out and see this movie. <laughs> I think you could write dissertations on this. You could teach classes about it. it it's... For a movie that seemed like it was going to misstep so many times, it it never did, and it made some really interesting choices, and it led me to believe that anything could happen by the end, and I think that it's incredibly uh, resonant for our time, I think. Yeah. Um, and it's definitely worth seeing. Yeah. And it's also a lot of fun. Like, it's a very enjoyable summer movie uh, by the same token. So, yeah, it's, it's totally worth seeing. Awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. Nerve. Go see it. And I think that's I think that's about it. I mean, do you want to tell people how they can learn more about the one on one podcast? Yeah, you can uh, follow us on Twitter at numeral one on one pod um, or you can uh, subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes, whatever podcast service you get. We're on Stitch, too, if that's your thing. Um, and yeah, that's mostly it. Send us an email at oneononepodcast at gmail.com. If you have a great podcast idea, we might use it for the show. Uh, but otherwise, as always, it's awesome to to do this and have you guys listen. And we're really excited to be back. And yeah, and because we didn't have the DC traffic and weather report at the beginning of the episode, it's hot. So that there you go. The, the, people, the people need it. Yeah. The people need their DC weather report. All right. Well... That's all we got. Thanks, Obama.